0: Some people have been dispatched to remove those. Look at them. What's with the empty chairs? Bring them back now. Uh, because they might miss Claire Collison, who is an amazing poet. It's not very often we have poetry at Book Jam, but sometimes somebody's voice is so moving, so transporting, so true, that you've just got to go, right, we're going to give you this space. I'm not the only person that thinks this. She's the winner of the inaugural Women's Book Prize, and her work's widely published, print and online. Claire Collison, I urge you to look it up. I first came across her uh, through a novel that she read for Brixton Book Jam seven years ago, and look where she's gone since then. She's been performing her life modeling monologue Truth is Beauty in venues across the country, and a series of posters all the single breasted ladies f- featuring words and images from her performances are currently fly posted all across the streets of Liverpool. So, ladies and gentlemen, please enthusiastically welcome Claire Collison to the stage.
1: What a lovely welcome. Thank you, Zelda. Keeping Borzoi. That was the summer you learned there was a point to eyelashes. And that having cancer didn't make you nice, wasn't enough of a thing in common. That the best conversation was with a nurse who hadn't had lunch or much sleep. For a week and sat with you behind blue curtains for the time it took to draw your blood while Magic FM and an aviary of machinery chirruped for her attention. How while wiping the soft inside of your arm with something cold, she told you she once did a runner from a wine bar on the Isle of Wight, kept Borzoi. How her boyfriend worked at Weatherspoon's and hated it. Thank you, thank you for letting me smuggle some poetry in. Um, Yeah, um, that poem was written five years ago and um, I live very close to here and I made a decision uh, when I found out I had breast cancer uh, to Walked to every single treatment at King's because it gave me a modicum of control. And uh, as Elizabeth Elizabeth Bowen says, nothing happens nowhere. And um, yeah, uh, Rosanna's already mentioned about um, gentrification. And I said I had something about gentrification. And this is called The Gentrification of Ruskin Park. Ruskin Park? Heckles. One last time I'll walk this route, stored in the sat-nav of my bones. I'll chant the mantra of place names, Peabody, Milkwood, Carnegie. There are figs in the shops, and the sun has come to see me off. Parakeets offer their fly past, and passion fruits garland fresh doors. Removal vans and recycling buckets flank the pavements. They've closed the library and left Asian pears for the wasps. There's a vacuum on the street and flat screens and a roll of bubble wrap, fat as a post box. Here's the desire path, shortcut to Kings, that was anything but and the ribbon tree dressed in trinkets. They've excavated basements and begun work on the helipad. My tumor was in this postcode truly as it was in my breast. Thanks. There's two more. I'm going north of the river, the ladies' Pond. Days before the mastectomy, you return to the heath to swim again while you can. It's May Day, and people are flying kites. There's a dog show with celebrities, obedience tests novelty cakes the pool is still as cool and green you drop down rungs this time watching your limbs porcelain sunlight slips through the tree perimeter mottling you, and you remember when you dove from the board over and over half your lifetime ago. It was dawn and you were naked, very two-breasted, very avant-garde. The old woman was pommed from the neck down. When she ordered you into the water, You complied the way a child would. She wasn't a prude, she told you later, in the changing room, where now two girls half your age, glowing from their impromptu dip, blot themselves on leaves of pink financial times. I mean, look, she said, peeling off her swimsuit without fuss. You can't remember much about the scars beyond her attitude. Look, she said, dismissing them. The scars were old and she was old. And she was here and swimming pond from the neck down. Thank you. Um, Oh, thank you. This last one is, um, there's not many fantastic things about cancer, but one great thing, I don't know how many of you have experienced a shaved head and how fantastic that feels. Yeah. (laughs) And um, it gave me an excuse to go to somewhere that had been outside of my permission. um, And so this is, this is dedicated to Andes on Tolls Hill. Um, and it's about how difficult people find talking about cancer. It's called The Art of Conversation. Let me not be the dreadful bore, the hostage-taker who can't cut a long story short, the one who drones on and on about missed connections and their significance, And makes you late for weddings and won't take a hint even when you make, oh God, that must have been awful noises as your phone fizzes with, where are you, texts. Or the oversharer you don't know from Eve, who sits down next to you on the bus, pinning you between her and the steamed up window. She's describing her medical procedures to you now in a too loud voice and in too much detail as the other passengers avoid eye contact. Let me be like the Tulse Hill barber, who, when my hair began to go like a blown dandelion clock, shaved me with dignity and a close razor, then held up a mirror and showed me something I'd never seen. The back of my own scalp. You have a good shaped head. He said to my reflection. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Wasn't that was a beautiful insight. So I. our next and almost last writer is Desmond Coy, who arrived on a ship from the Caribbean in the 1950s and had to graft pretty hard to survive in this harsh landscape of Britain. Uh, he, he did that maybe by sometimes making some intriguing choices, meeting the Beatles, supplying all kinds of incredible musicians with the comestibles that inspired them. I'm not going to Go into details in case there's any lawyers in the audience. You get a picture. Uh, So because I don't want to perjure him, I'm not, that's it, that's it from me. But Desmond Coy is gonna come and share his wonderful stories about uh, the Beatles, the Clash, every single cool person that shaped your musical landscape. He was inspiring them chemically.
2: Good evening everybody, Um, fantastic to be here. I've been here a few times uh, when friends of mine who are writers and I come to support them. So um, this is my first book, big motherfucking book it is too. Um, And it took me about 10 years to write it. Um, Let's see now, let me just, sorry? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, 20 quid. So, whatever. But um, I, I first started writing, decided writing when I was in jail. Um, I, was, um, I was in Ford Prison, which is the, the best prison in England, and um, I was um, waiting to be sentenced, I think, um, because I got busted for selling drugs to the American Air Base, and they don't take that, you know, lightly. So, whatever. They don't, they don't like it. So, uh, well it, the people in the earbase liked it, but not everybody else. <laughs> so, um, so while I'm in jail, oh no, I um, get busted. My lawyer tells me um, you can expect seven years. So I thought, fuck. But just before this, I was working at a club called the Roxy Club, which is a punk club back in the day, you know, like in the old days, uh, in the 70s, I guess. So I was working there and I was. Um, you know i was working behind the bar working by the door doing announcing and shit like that and i got friendly with people like um oh sid vicious uh strummer uh, Shawn, uh, shane mcgowan a lot of those motherfuckers and then later on they became big so while i was on the run these guys were happening they just suddenly got contracts and everything and were making fucking big records and everything so because they're my friends a friend of mine worked in Public Image Limited, Jeanette, she now runs Rough Trade Records, um, bought me a camera and said, Desmond, come on tour, take pictures, um, you can sell them to a record company and make a living. So I had to change my name. My name is Desmond Coy by birth, but everybody knows me from that side through my brother. His name is Don Letts. So when they see Don Letts, they naturally think I'm Desmond Letts, I'm actually Desmond Coy. He's my, we have the same mother, different father. I was born in Jamaica, he was born over here. So he's a big time DJ, kind of fucking, whatever he does now, you know. Anyway, so I'm on the run, um, I'm hanging with The Clash, I'm hanging with The Pretenders, I'm hanging with Chrissy, and Chrissy would take me to the record company, introduce me to the A&R people, I get passes, I can do photographs of Chic and whatever. Then I got work with Island Records, and I was doing pictures with the um, B-52s, Robert Palmer, the Slits. So, you know, I was okay. I was on a run. I was a fugitive. My brother goes off to America to do this uh, documentary called um, Clash on Broadway, I think it is. Uh, a documentary about the Clash. He later won a Grammy for that. So while he was in America, I was staying at this flat in Stockwell. Still a fugitive. Decided to go out driving one day, one evening. Brixton Hill. Get ca- caught by the cops in a stop. They see my driving license, they do a check of me, and they take me away. Um, so I'm in Ford Prison. I don't get it because I was a fugitive for like two years and I traveled over to, uh, I was in Spain and Paris and Amsterdam and Munich as a fugitive. Come back to England and get fucking busted. Now I don't understand it because being a fugitive, you think they wouldn't want to send you to an open prison. They want to send you to a closed prison because You've escaped before. So how would they, you know, I don't get it. But while I was in Ford Prison, which is supposed to be the best prison in England, I took in some of these classes. I tried this Buddhism class. I don't know, they're trying to figure out how I'm going to deal with this fucking, in, in fact, they gave me three and a half years. That was the sentence in the end. I thought to me it's a lifetime, all right? Because I was just supplying some ganja and some dope and some stuff to the fucking American pilots and shit, you know. Um, so anyway, I took in this writing, cl- uh, Buddhism, and we had this guy who's a monk, he come in the robes and everything, bald head, everything, um, sandals, um, he was from Yorkshire, he used to be a, an actor on TV or, or something, I mean, I don't know how he became a Buddhist, I mean, I don't know, I, fucking, I, w- I go to a Buddhist, I want to see, you know, Kung Fu Man, you know, that kind of shit, I don't want to see a guy from Yorkshire, and um, so... What freaked me out was I couldn't do this cross legging and stuff for too long. So there's about six people in this class. Um, Next to me was a guy who was a murderer, killed his wife and his wife's mother. And he was now on parole. He's going to get out in like the next year or so. They sent him to my prison after sending him to like Dartmoor or somewhere. So he gets accustomed to a bit of freedom. So the prison I was at, you, there's no bars, no cells, no nothing. You just had a bunk. You walk around the place. Everything was cool. Um, in the end, I get out. A guy called uh, par- my parole was about 18 months while I was in prison. Uh, my parole was due. Everybody tell me Desmond, you're not going to get parole because you're selling drugs. You got to cut your hair. You got to dress with a tie and this. And I was a real rebel by then. I just said fuck it. You know, I was reading some bad motherfucking stuff like um, Malcolm X. People like that was just helping me get through because there's racist motherfuckers everywhere. Okay, so parole is due. A guy who I've never met before in my life, right? He had a he had a bookshop, he had a record company, whatever. That's all he had. Wrote to the governor of the prison saying, look, if you used to give Desmond parole, I'll give him a job in my record shop or my bookshop. Um, at, the, at the moment, I'm employing a thousand people. This guy has never met before. His name is Richard Branson. I don't mean, I don't put his name in the book because I don't wanna fuck him up, you know, I just, but he did the thing for me, I got out on parole. Okay, so I'm gonna just read you one, two pages. I'm not gonna read you anything about the rest of the book. You can check it out, it's a a fabulous book, really. No, seriously, it took me 10 years to write this thing. It was twice the size. I had turned down two publishers because they were telling me there was restrictions and this. Look. I wanted to write a punk book. I wanted to do it myself, edit it, do everything. I wanted to big, this fucking size. If that's the way it is, that's the way it is. I don't care. I don't want people telling tell me, you can't have the cover like this. You can't. Fuck it, man. I'm coming from punk. So I'm going to read um, the... Can I just get a little sip of Coca- Coca-Cola? Is that okay? Is that okay with you guys? Can I just get... Yeah. A
0: Tell you a joke. So I'm gonna tell you a joke. There's a woman looking out the window and she sees these two guys working on the street. One of them's digging holes, the other one's filling them in. She watches them doing this all afternoon and eventually she goes, I can't watch this anymore. What's going on? I said, Well, usually there's three of us, but the guy that plants the trees is sick today.
2: Okay, this is my very first kind of reading of my book. In fact, I kind of stopped reading it for a while because it took me fucking 18 months just to edit it. And I kind of, you know, this is my first, you're my first audience, okay? Yeah. So I'm a bit nervous, I might fuck up a little bit. I might kind of stumble in some words because I didn't even re- realize I was dyslexic until I was 60. All right, Rock and Roll Outlaw, 1980. You know, in those biblical movies when God speaks to his main man, usually the star of the show, like Moses, for instance, in the 10 commandments and God is given instruction on how Moses can save his nation from Pharaoh. Well, as a kid growing up in Jamaica and seeing these movies made me really believe that was how God operates. It comes to you when you least expect it, but you gotta be a good person. You ain't got time for bad cats. Now, I have to admit that I used to be bad, but that was before I got busted. But since then, I've been trying real hard to be good. And I can tell you, it's not easy switching from bad to good. Okay, but I'm hoping God must have seen this changing me, seeing how good I've become over the last few weeks, and who knows, maybe God might feel it's okay to make contact like he did with Moses. Now, here's the deal, I'm in a fucking cell I don't know what I'm gonna do. I've, I've never been in jail before like that. I don't fucking know what's gonna happen. I don't know about these people around me, the fucking Babylon, so I'm, I'm calling to God. All right, I need help. So, okay, God might feel it's okay to make contact with me like he did with Moses. That would have been real helpful because I needed some guidance if I was gonna survive in this jail. And I got to admit, it got to the stage where every night I'd be there expecting this vision to appear, waiting to hear this deep, comforting voice coming all the way from heaven, just like in the movies, to tell me what I needed to do to get through what I felt was a life sentence. Now, I have to admit, God didn't come to me like in the movies. There was no angel or glowing light that I could see. Mind you, God probably knew that would have freaked me out. But that's not not to say that God wasn't listening when I called him. And in hindsight, the conversation may well have gone like this. So I believe in God, right? I mean, when you go to places like prison, it can fuck people up. I watch TV shows, you know, with these guys in prison that are taking all these drugs and shit. Some prison, man, if, you, if you've got character, if you want to do something, you can fucking do something. Prison doesn't have to be bad. I, you know, I did, okay, I, did, I went to the best prison, had great teaching. I was taught creative writing by Edna, fucking Miss Edna O'Brien. That's a big fucking deal. You know, and when I finished a class and I was going to be released and she realized I was going to get parole, she called me over and said, Desmond, look. And she wrote an eight by 10 piece of paper. Call these people, don't mention my name, call these people, there's my publishers. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know, you know, she's my teacher. I didn't know anything about her. I never read anything. Faber and fucking Faber. I, man, that's a big deal. It's not my style. I'm just kind of like, you know, a reg- regular kind of book if I am get a book. So she really, she was big time. It's only recently I saw on TV this Imagine TV show um, with Alan Lientob and they did a program and I just thought, fuck you know, this is the lady that taught me writing. Anyway, her name is Miss Edna O'Brien. I love her. Uh, Yeah, so the conversation with God must have gone like this. Desmond, I can't take you to prison just like that, but get through this little drama and in five years time, you're gonna be buzzing out. You're going to see places you've seen in the movies when you're a kid in Jamaica, like Texas. Remember all those cowboy comics you love so much? Remember the two-gun kid, rawhide kid, kid cult, and Geronimo? You liked him. He was the Apache you played when you and your school friends were cowboys and Indians because you were good with a bow and arrow. Well, you're going to hang out and smoke some bad shit with a couple of real Apache Indians in Texas. And not only that, you're going to meet cats you've seen on TV. Musicians and singers and big stars, too. Cats you love and dig big time. I'm talking Bowie and Ivan from The Heart of They Come. Yes, Desmond, you're gonna hang with Jimmy Cliff. And that's not enough, because I know you love the girls, you're gonna fall in love all over the world. I'm talking Paris, Rome, San Francisco, New York, New Orleans. Oh, you're gonna love New Orleans. And guess what? You're gonna see Hollywood. Can you believe that? Now, for me, as a Brixton boy, I got a job with big audio dynamite. I just come out of jail, and now I'm gonna be fucking, one minute I'm in Brixton in a council flat, and a couple of days later, I'm on Sunset Boulevard in a fucking hotel, everything's paid for. Next thing you know, you're in Hollywood. To me, that's a big trip. From Brixton to Hollywood? Fuck me, man. And they're paying for it? Okay. And imagine you and your key spa, Leo, hanging on Sunset's trip. You must remember that TV show, 77 77 Sunset Strip, you and your brothers used to watch in your mom's bedroom at Trier and Road on the black and white telly on Sunday nights back in the 60s. Of course you do, what was I thinking? Desmond, you and Leo are gonna have a blast, so I'm gonna mark your card, put you straight on what's to come if you stay cool and don't panic. You're gonna witness magic, yeah, real magic, close up too, on stage, this cat is gonna blow you away. If you think Sly Stone was the greatest, well, let me tell you something. This cat goes by the name of Prince. I'm telling you, Desmond, this guy is gonna trip you out big time. And then there's this other youth you'll meet a few times who's gonna be big, like a real big superstar. And he's gonna have you shaking your head every time he comes on top of the pops, wondering how did this kid you used to see hanging out to the office of Invision on South Melton Street get so big. This chubby kid checking when he'd pass by and seeing you sit, sitting on the window ledge, burning your spliff like you're a bad man. Give him that look, as if to say, fucking hurry up with the drum machine. And him looking like he wanted to say something, but thought better of it. And when you check Mark Dean, the main man, wanting to know why this guy's hanging onto drum machine and 8-track recorder, keeping your boys waiting for ages. My boys, it's a, a group of, young kids who was trying to do some rap stuff, and this company wanted to work with them. But we're waiting for this fucking drum machine and recorder, right? Uh, Drum machine, keeping your boys waiting for, he's gonna tell you, wham rap is on its way. And you like a jerk, look at this guy you thought was hip. Like real hip. Guy was always in the States checking out cats who were putting it down on the streets. In Brooklyn, Bronx, Harlem and coming back all excited with new ideas. Now, here is he telling you, these two white boys are making a rap record. This is a joke, right? What are they gonna rap about? What do they know about inner city blues? Yeah, it has to be a joke. Maybe he was planning to release it for Christmas. That could work. If Mr. Blobby can make number one, why not, why not these two white English rappers? Wham rap, give me a break. So in the meantime, Desmond, just don't panic. And don't try and escape. If I was you, I'd get some rest. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little bit tired tonight. Seems a lot of people down there are switching over from bad to good. I have to figure out who's telling the truth. America and Nigeria is especially hard work. Some of those sinners in those two countries are so convincing, you won't believe it. I know for a fact a few have slipped past me and are here living in heaven illegally, I might have. Good night. So. That's my book. (laughs) And you're my first audience.
0: (laughs) Where can they hear your work?
2: You're my first audience. I've had, I published it myself, turned down two publishers.
0: We gotta get this out. This book needs to be read.
2: All right, so this is the book, Return of the Killer Draw. Jamaican boy, came to England in the 60s. It wasn't so bad. London in the 60s to me, man, was the fucking greatest city in the world. We don't see all this shit that we see now, like this knife crime and this, uh, what, this thing where the people take drugs over to another border. Or I don't get the fucking Candy thing we're games. living. I don't get it. In the 60s, well, it was cool. I love the 60s. I'm a hippie. Thank Desmond, you. Many I'm Desmond. Des- hope you like it. Okay. Where can we get your book from? My book is sold out. It's sold out on Amazon. It's sold out on Wethers- Spoon or Winterspoon. Wethers- it's sold out everywhere. You can get it too here. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. My name is Desmond Coy. I'm on Facebook. I post you. I hope you like it, man. See you you, then.
0: I'm starting to think all these people that come up here with so much talent, no fracker will publish them because publishing is risk-averse. They're a bunch of cunts. All they care about is money. Who thinks Brixton Book Champs should publish people's books? Anyway, we will consider it. So, is Brian O'Horan in the house? To the white courtesy telephone now, please. Hello. He's just too rock and roll to turn up, to be honest. Uh, and also, very sadly, sal- sal- Leo Unadike is a victim of coronavirus. So, I hope not to have to do this. You are gonna have to deal with two minutes of magpies. Is that okay? It's actually, I'm going to read you uh, 500 words set in this very pub, in this very room. Ready? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Another Brixton preacher doing his rounds in Brixton Market. She can hear him in the distance. It's the same sermon every day. Perhaps he's right. She'd long thought Christians were vain. If it came to it, a religion based on shame, not honour, not self-reliance, a culture ruled by men. Don't fool yourself; you're still ruled by men. Every time Eva put on her makeup, her battle paint, prepared herself for another date with a stranger, she reaffirmed their hold over her. How could they be expected to respect women they'd paid for, chattel? her life in their hands hold on loosely to the things that are of this world hold on tightly to the spirit eternal life will be yours if you submit to his will charlie said he'd once been a famous boxer he holds himself erect his skin is ebony his clothes immaculate he is courteous she seen him pause his preaching for a sleeping baby. The road to hell is wide. The road to heaven is narrow and takes many twists. Yet take ye the narrow path, for it leads to righteousness. Only the righteous are pure. If he knew what I was, he would label me Jezebel. There's no room in his liturgy for me or the likes of me. It's not vanity. It's power taking back control. I will not surrender to a vengeful god. I choose to send these souls to Satan, a small service. Instinctively avoiding Rush Common with its colonies of magpies, she decided to take the slightly longer route down Ephra Road, which also happened to pass the Hootenanny. It wasn't that she didn't trust Charlie exactly, but the memory of the way she'd been with that girl lingered, the easiness between them. Maybe she should drop in after all. It wasn't an evening to spend alone. She'd rather endure the Hootenanny regulars than be at the mercy of those thoughts. As she walked down Effra Road, Eva kept her eyes on the pavement, avoiding contact with the other pedestrians it would soon be time to start another round of the game. She was wary of magpies. She knew they were almost certainly watching her. Trees lined the road on both sides, in the gardens set back from the road, in front of the business park and the pub gardens. Maybe she would have been better off taking the latter of the streets that wended their way behind the effort to meet at Bricks and Water Lane. Rattray, Kellet, Sultun. Beneath her feet, she felt the Ephra flow, its trapped bulk surging through the pipes that had been laid to constrain it. Her feet were dowsing rods, her arms pendulums divining the current of the city. If not through the magpies, it would find another way to instruct her. She could not run from it. She could only delay the inevitable by losing herself in the crowds. And how did the magpies know which notes were intended for which people? They never failed. She was just as controlled as the clients who called her Madam, the only difference being that it was a game they had chosen to play, a straight transaction, cash for pain. Eva came to the Hootenanny and scanned the garden for Charlie, no sign. Maybe she was inside. She continued to the street door and peered through. Charlie had her back to her, poised for a shot, and in the background she could see the usual suspects. Eva could see the soft nape of her neck, could almost feel the roundness of her small buttocks in her hands. Charlie let fly and she stepped back to admire the effects of her shot. Eva realized with a shock she was playing that girl. She ducked back out of the doorway, and out of sight of anyone in the pub. She felt the anger rising within her. The tenderness she'd felt moments before, replaced by rage. Maybe it was a chance meeting, and Charlie hadn't known that she would be there. She certainly hadn't mentioned it. Eva tried hard not to jump to the obvious conclusion. Anyway, there was no point making a scene that would almost certainly backfire she was not unaware of how hard she'd been to live with recently the sacrifices that charlie had made on her behalf what should she do now the only thing to do was brazen it out after all charlie was her girl and it wouldn't do any harm to stake a claim eva turned back and pushed open the door to the pub her features already rearranging themselves into a smile.